Good morning. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these elders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain, and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the laws and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up to the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up, on, up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. You can be seated. Thanks, Ron. I recently acquired a book. It's called simply Crucifixion. And it's an art book. And it contains over 100 pictures of how the crucifixion of Jesus has been portrayed in art over the centuries. In paint, on paper, uh, in carvings. And the pictures are arranged chronologically. And each one is given a brief editorial comment or description. And artists like uh, Rembrandt and Michelangelo and Picasso are represented in in the book. The very first picture is a picture of an ivory carving. It's the earliest surviving image that we have of the crucifixion and dates from approximately 430 BC. And beside that picture in the book, the editors make this comment. Quote, It was not until the early 5th century that Christ was shown fixed upon the cross. The shame of crucifixion a punishment reserved for slaves and common criminals, perhaps leading the earliest Christians to downplay that element of the story. 
end quote. Now that statement, I think, betrays the editor's lack of understanding of Christian history. Christianity from its very earliest days, far from downplaying the crucifixion of Jesus, focused on it. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, written, by the way, before even the Gospels were written, says this in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. And just a few verses later in chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Gospels themselves devote more than a third of their material to the events of the last week of Jesus' life. And none of them, shy away from describing Jesus' trial and suffering and crucifixion. And the twofold historical event that was the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus is the center of Christianity and has always been, and Christians have never downplayed it. Now, we are today in the second Sunday of the Lenten season. Uh, these are the weeks leading up to Good Friday and Easter when we celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus, respectively. And on these Sunday mornings, we're in a series of messages that I've called the blood of the cross. And we're considering how the New Testament interprets the significance of the death of Jesus according to Old Testament pictures. Okay, the, the apostles in the New Testament understood what Jesus' death accomplished, what it meant, because they'd been prepared for it by the Old Testament. Last week, we looked at the history of the Passover and how the blood of the Lamb saved the Israelite people from God's judgment from sin. And Jesus' own death, we said, we noticed, occurred during the week of Passover. His last supper with the disciples was the Passover meal. The New Testament writers make reference to the blood of the Lamb and the Lamb that was slain. And Paul outright calls Jesus our Passover Lamb. It's from the Passover that we get our idea of Jesus dying in our place, the, the innocent, unblemished, substitute sacrifice bearing the judgment for God, for sin, on our behalf. But Passover by itself does not complete the biblical picture of Jesus' death. The New Testament references other realities as well. There's other images that shed light on the crucifixion and what it means for us today. And for one of the most important of these images or frameworks or pictures, we go to Exodus chapter 24. What I consider, frankly, the most important chapter in the Old Testament for understanding the New Testament. And I'm willing to bet that most of us are not very familiar with this chapter. To pick up the Old Testament story from last week and the Passover... Um, the night of the Passover was the night of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And after the tenth and final plague, Pharaoh not only lets the Israelites go, he virtually sends them out, orders them out of the country. But before very long, while the Israelites are camped on the shore of the Red Sea, Pharaoh changes his mind and sets out with his army to bring his slaves back. 
And in one of the most familiar stories in all of the Old Testament, all of Scripture, in a dramatic event, God rescues his people by parting the Red Sea. They cross safely through to the other side. And the Egyptian army is destroyed in the process. From there, the Israelites travel to Mount Sinai, where God will make a covenant with them. And it was at Mount Sinai that their identity as a people shifted from being merely the multitude of descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the nation of Israel and the people of God. The Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai back in Exodus chapter 19, and there they see and hear the glory of God. Thunder, lightning, a thick cloud, the blast of a trumpet, the mountain itself trembling, and the people themselves trembling. They are, they are understanding, beginning to understand that the God who has delivered them, rescued them from slavery, evokes awe and even terror. He is so overwhelmingly great, glorious, majestic, holy. That this is the God, as they see his glory on the mountain, this is the God who has acted on their behalf to free them and to bring them to himself. And at Mount Sinai, God is going to make a covenant with them. They will be his people. He will be their God. In Exodus chapters 19 to 24, describe this covenant-making ceremony. In the ancient Mediterranean world, the Middle Eastern world, a covenant between an overlord and a subject state was framed in a certain way. And the covenant between God and Israel follows that framework. God is following the accepted protocols, the expected diplomatic process in these chapters in Exodus. And the reason he's doing that is so that the people of Israel will understand in no uncertain terms the kind of covenant that God is making with them. And so here you have the the coming of the king as God descends on the mountain, his, his arrival announced by the blast of the trumpet, a, a mediator from the other party is sent out to meet him. And so Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. Moses receives the terms of the covenant, how the people are to live in the context of this new relationship under and with their king. And the term, terms of the covenant include the words... Of God. And that's the phrase that the scripture uses. We know these words as the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 and verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he gives to them the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. These are followed then with the rules. Exodus chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. And Exodus 21, 22, and 23 are uh, a laying out of what these rules are. And then we come to Exodus 24. So God has given words and rules to Moses to pass on to the people. Now, Moses does not represent the people of Israel here. Moses is acting as a mediator between the people of Israel and God. The people of Israel are going to be represented by Moses' brother Aaron and Aaron's two sons 
and also by 70 of the elders or leaders of Israel, the acknowledged leaders of the people, who have the authority to speak and make decisions for the nation. And God commands Moses to summon this delegation. Exodus 24. He said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. So Moses then goes down to get this delegation of people, and he delivers to the people, via this delegation, God's terms. Exodus 24, verse 3, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In other words, Moses says, this is what the covenant will look like. And the people say, okay, we accept these terms. Now they are ready to sign the document. Now they are ready to formally enter the covenant. It's like God has proposed to them, and they have accepted, and now they are ready to get married. Now they're ready to enter into the wedding ceremony, the covenant-making ceremony. So the delegation of the Israelite leaders is called out of the camp, but not yet called out to approach God. They must remain at a distance. Why? Because people who by nature are sinners are just not allowed to approach the holy and the perfect God whose glory and holiness is manifested by a cloud of glory and lightning and thunder and the trembling of the mountain. They are just unable to do so. This is at least in part for their own protection. Like a moth flying too close to the flame will be incinerated by the flame's heat, God's perfect holiness destroys sin. And since the people are by nature sinners, they would be destroyed if they approached God. It's not just that people have sin in them that can be destroyed while they themselves are preserved. The Bible teaches that sin takes people over so completely that it becomes their core identity. In the days of Noah, Genesis 6 and verse 5, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually or all the time. Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, not even one. Ephesians 2, people are by nature children of wrath. Colossians 1, that we were enemies of God. In other words, for me to say I am a sinner is less a statement about my behavior than it is a statement about my identity. My behavior simply reflects who I am. And what I am is what all people are. Sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3. Psalm 24. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands, i.e., who has done no wrong, and a pure heart, who doesn't harbor sin within. Who has a pure heart? Pure, by definition, means no flaw. Do you remember ivory soap, 99 and 44 one-hundredths of a percent pure? We have a word for something that is 99.44% pure. Impure. It is not pure. Pure means no flaw. 
In me, that means no pride, no selfish ambition, no critical tendency, no greed, no lust. And there is no pure heart. There is no one who may stand on God's holy hill in his holy presence. And I could quote a hundred scriptures. The Bible makes a point repeatedly that nobody is able to approach or stand before God. God's holiness would destroy sin and therefore destroy the sinner. And so the elders of Israel, this delegation representing the people, are called out and they may worship but only at a distance. Then Moses, to continue the formal process, sets down the terms of the covenant. And Moses wrote down all the words of the law. Verse 4. And now before the covenant can be formally ratified, before there can actually be a meeting of the two parties, something has to happen. Because the people of Israel are still at a distance. And before they can draw near, this is what has to take place. Exodus 24, verse 4. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Offerings are sacrificed in order to make atonement for the sins of the people. And we're going to talk more about atonement next time, in two Sundays from now. But even before this time, in Exodus 24, the worship of God always had an altar. Right from the days of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4, through Noah and Abraham and Jacob, sinners only worship God on the basis of a blood sacrifice. That's the meaning that lies behind circumcision in the Old Testament. That's the meaning that lies behind Passover in the Old Testament. It's not because God is barbaric or that people were primitive. It's because the nature of sin is so grievous that it's literally a life and death issue. Even the so-called smallest sin is such a grievous offense against the perfect character of God that the only just consequence for sin is death. But God, who is gracious, allowed a substitutionary sacrifice so that the death of the sacrificial animal instead of the death of the sinner was acceptable to God. And with the death of the animal as payment for or atonement for sin, a person was enabled to worship in God's presence, as symbolized by the altar. And so the Israelite delegation, who so far are allowed only to worship at a distance, offer sacrifices to pay for or to atone for their sins. And this is necessary first if they are to approach and meet with God and enter into a covenant together with him. 
And Moses takes the blood of the sacrifices, the sacrifice and puts it in a basin, see the bowl on the cross. He then throws half of the blood against the altar. Literally, he sprinkles it. That's what the word means. He takes a branch, dips it in the blood, and splatters the altar with the blood of the sacrifice. And the altar represents God, his presence. And so the sign of the covenant, the blood, is on God, as it were. That's what that's supposed to mean. Then Moses reads to the people the words of the covenant, and when the people affirm it, he splashes the other half of the blood on the people that are standing there. And this is the mark of the covenant, the blood, on the altar, on God, as it were, and now on the people. And this is a key piece of data in order for us to understand the New Testament. Covenants in that day, not just religious covenants and not just in the Bible, but covenants were sealed with blood in order to signify what would happen if one of the parties broke the covenant. For example, when God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, God had Abraham cut some animals in half and arrange them in rows. And then God passed through the rows, signifying that if he broke the covenant, may he, that is God, suffer the same fate as those animals. And the same kind of thing is happening in Exodus 24. When Moses splashes blood on the altar and on the people... This means that they are binding themselves to one another in a covenant to the death. And if either party fails to uphold their end of the covenant, may their blood be spilled. And Moses calls it the blood of the covenant. Exodus 24, verse 9. Uh, Verse 8. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. The blood is the sign that God and his people are bound together in relationship to one another. He is their God who will provide for them and care for them and protect them, offer them security and blessing. And they are his people who will honor him and worship him and serve him and live their lives in the context of his lordship. The problem is, who can keep a covenant with God? The covenant required perfect obedience, required perfect righteousness. God had said in chapter 19, when they first came to Sinai, if you obey my words, my voice, And keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Their secure status was contingent on their obedience. And who can perfectly obey God? Not the Israelites. Within 40 days, they'll be having an orgy around the golden calf that they've made to worship. And all throughout their history, they repeatedly, consistently abandoned God for the sake of the worship of pagan idols. Who can perfectly obey God? Not me. Not you. Every one of us has at some point stumbled over at least one, if not all, of the ten words, the ten commandments. Have you ever chosen something over God? I have. Every time I've chosen to carry a grudge... 
Every time I've chosen laziness instead of my best in ministry. Every time I've lusted or barked at my kids or been dishonest or seethed over someone's criticism of me. Or set aside the Bible or prayer because I didn't feel like it. Whenever I'm insensitive to the plight of my neighbor, the poor. In all of these things, I have set my own self and my sense of rights over God. Have you ever coveted something that belongs to someone else? Have you ever stolen something or claimed entitlement to something that was not rightfully yours? It might have just been an attitude or an object. Have you ever gone a week without taking a day for rest? The fact is that the Bible is bang on when it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in the Old Testament, God uses Israel to showcase the reality of the whole human race. God desires covenant relationship with all people. And yet all people have sinned and therefore are unable to be in relationship with God. We are all by nature sinners and objects of wrath. But God, even in the Old Testament, promised a new covenant. Once Israel, and I think once we, demonstrated our fundamental inability and, frankly, often unwillingness to obey God, God said, okay, now let me do it. This is what he says in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one 